Development Goals are in part an encouragement for countries around the world to look after their environment and reduce the damage being done to ecosystems. This is particularly important in the Pacific, where many countries are resource-challenged. The Environment Panel at the 2018 Pacific Update made a valuable contribution to such discussions, exploring Pacific world heritage, how to implement environmental economic accounting for sustainable resource use and development in the region, and compensation valuation approaches of ecosystem services and biodiversity of customary land resources and native fishing rights in Fiji. Welcome everyone here and everyone who is uh, watching on the live stream. My name is Ray Bojack. I work at the Australian High Commission, I'm primarily working on climate change resilience and humanitarian issues, and I have been given the honour of chairing uh, today's panel um, on the environment. Um, congratulations to everyone here for coming. It's the final um, session after uh, two long, but I'm sure very uh, interesting uh, and thought-provoking days. Uh, this session is supposed to finish at 5pm uh, and I will do my best to keep us to that time. Um, today we are honoured uh, to have uh, three speakers who are all talking about very interesting but diverse issues um, around uh, environment in the Pacific. Um, I think we're going to get some really uh, interesting um, views on a sort of range of different topics. Uh, so without further ado, I will ask uh, Luke uh, Kittle to uh, come and give his presentation on Pacific World Heritage, Underrepresentation, Opportunity and Challenge. Just before that, just to let everyone know, the, the, the structure for today is 20-minute presentations. I'll give a little uh, warning at, at five minutes. Um, then we'll have, I hope, around 30 minutes, it might be a little bit less, for, um, for questions. So, Luke, please. Thanks, Ray. I'll just um, bring this up as a slideshow. Um, so just a little bit about me before um, we begin. Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm a, a, a bit of, sometimes I feel like I'm a bit of everything. I don't know, it's hard to, hard to sometimes describe myself, but um, in recent times, I've been doing some uh, uh, consultancy work in the aid and development sector um, and some university work. Um, uh, from 2011 to 2015, um, I was working for the New Zealand Aid Programme, um, two years managing the Solomon Islands Programme in Wellington and then three years uh, managing the economic development side of the portfolio from the New Zealand High Commission in Honiara. Um, and before that, I was um, doing some uh, PhD work, um, actually here in Fiji, working in a formal settlement. So my main area of work is around urban issues in, in the Pacific and small island states. Um, I'm just starting some work with Victoria University of Wellington in the Environment Studies Program, what's a mixture of Environment Studies and Human Geography. Um, so that's sort of my immediate focus. But I wanna, what I wanted to talk to you about today um, it's a bit of a hard act um, in, in the last session of the day, so I hope you remain interested. I've got a few photos, um, but really I've just got one key message, um, which I'll highlight as, as we go through. Um, a bit of background to this is um, when I was working for the New Zealand Aid Programme, I visited Renal in, uh, in late 2015, which is a Polynesian outlier of the Solomon Islands and south of Guadalcanal. It's a really interesting place. 
um, a really divisive place, and that sparked an interest for me in in uh, in world heritage issues because half of Renal is um, a, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, the other half of Renal um, is is dominated by by some quite divisive um, extractive activity with logging and now and now bauxite mining. I'll talk a little bit more about Renal soon. Um, so there's eight UNESCO World Heritage Sites in the Pacific. Some of you, uh, I'm sure, will be familiar with these sites. Um, East Renal in the Solomons was the first to be inscripted in, in 1998. Um, to be inscripted, uh, um, what's important um, uh, um, for UNESCO is to have outstanding universal value. And the World Heritage Committee defines that as cultural and or natural significance, which is so exceptional as to transcend national boundaries and to be of common importance for present and future generations of all humanity. So there's now eight um, World Heritage Sites in Pacific independent states, um, with the most recently uh, inscripted uh, in, in Micronesia in 2016. There, there are others in the Pacific, um, just a handful, um, in some of the French territories in, in Hawaii, um, but it is a relatively short list. There's at least 28, maybe a few more on on a tentative list, so they are they are sites that have been um, identified by state parties um, as 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 to be considered for 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 inscription. This is my main point. This is what I want you to take away from this. Um, Pacific SIDS are home to only eight, that eight is actually um, a, a very small subset of the world's 1,000, um, over 1,000 UNESCO World Heritage Sites. So it's less than 1%. Um, the World Heritage Committee have actually been meeting in Bahrain over the last week um, to, among other things, consider some new sites for inscription. Um, there was about um, a, a list of 30 sites um, uh, across the world that they were considering. Um, none of those were in the Pacific. When I last um, uh, looked at that, three of those had been agreed for inscription. So that number has, has jumped up to 1,076, perhaps more now. Um, in the Pacific now, two sites are on UNESCO's list of World Heritage Sites in danger. East Reynolds, and I'll talk more about this later, is, um, is principally from threats from, from logging and mining, which is happening in the western side of the island. Um, and Nan Madal, I don't know a whole lot about that, um, that, that site, but the one in FSM, that's mainly from, from siltation. Um, I think what, what, is, what also is interesting with, with, with that list, I'll just go back, is um, as many of those sites that have been inscripted in relatively recent times. I've robbed this um, pie chart from uh, uh, Stephanie Price, who completed a, uh, recently completed her PhD thesis on East Renal and Solomons, and particularly um, uh, how to strengthen World Heritage um, protection in the Solomons. Um, that small blue slither that you can see, um, I hope you can see that, is, is, the, is, is the Pacific UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Um, the big orange segment is... Um, is 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 the World Heritage Sites um, in in Europe and, and North North America. This pie chart will be slightly different now. It's a little bit outdated, but you get but you get the picture. Um, so UNESCO um, in based in uh, have a regional office based in Apia, and um, they have also um, uh, uh, sponsored and, and produced a, a recent document called the Pacific World Heritage Action Plan, which provides strategic guidance 
um, and a list of, of, of regional and national actions. Um, it recognizes that the region offers a unique contribution to, to global heritage um, from the Pacific's enormous wealth, uh, enormous wealth of cultural island and marine biodiversity. And it, and it clearly flags that the Pacific is underrepresented on that list. Um, it, it, it is, uh, I won't go through this word for word. I know it's a, um, a pretty wordy slide, but um, one of the key aims is, is to uh, to build global recognition and support for increasing Pacific representation on that on that list. Um, so, so it proposes, a, um, as I said just before, a series of regional and national level um, activities, but there are funding funding issues associated with with many of those um, um, proposed activities, particularly at the national level. I think. Um, here at USP, um, there is um, uh, an outfit called the Pacific Heritage Hub, which is based in the um, Oceanic Centre for Arts, Culture and Pacific Studies. Um, it was established in, in 2013, uh, actually with some initial money from, from the Aussies, um, which has now, now run out. Um, and that was uh, intended that the Pacific Heritage Hub was a regional facility for, for World Heritage Knowledge Management, Capacity Building and Partnership. Um, essentially, that, that, that hub for all things um, uh, heritage in the Pacific. Um, it, 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 when the Australian funded funding uh, in, ended, my understanding is uh, is the USP picked up uh, um, some small amount of funding, um, but it, it does face very significant um, financing challenges. And um, actually, talking to folk here. Um, I get the sense that it's 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 not really something that has a whole lot of momentum at the moment. So there were, there was a manager um, for the Pacific Heritage Hub, but that, that funding has finished for that position. Uh, so there's no one actually dedicated to the Pacific Heritage Hub at the moment. Um, so I mean, as to the question, you know, why is the Pacific so underrepresented when it comes to UNESCO World Heritage sites? The Pacific World Heritage Action Plan. Uh, has a has a long list there of, of reasons which I've attempted to consolidate into these bullet points here. One, uh, limited awareness of Pacific cultural and, and natural heritage outside of the region. Um, uh, the the plan cites uh, the Pacific's large geographic area, isolation and, and resource limitations. Um, it also talks about the need for increased awareness within communities of the value of world heritage, especially for protection. Um, and I would argue also around the, um, the potential for economic benefit, um, which is, of course, not necessarily guaranteed. The plan talks about um, political instability and, and, and governance, governance issues in some Pacific states as, as, a, as a constraint. And it also cites uh, increased external challenges such as globalization, spread of pests and diseases, which is very pertinent to East Renal, uh, and, and climate change, of course. In addition to that, um, Stephanie Price um, 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 makes the point that, of course, to be inscripted, uh, a site needs to be nominated um, by a state party to the World Heritage um, Convention. Um, and um, and makes the point that that perhaps it, it, it's just not a priority for some Pacific states. Um, of course, there's uh, uh, very significant needs in, 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 in a range of sectors in Pacific states. Um, she also makes the point that uh, a lack of resources and, compa and capacity to go through the process might be a constraint, constraint factor. And the reality is there's a whole heap of work required to reach inscription. It was the New Zealand government supporting 
the Solomon Islands government in the, uh, the mid-1990s, and my understanding is that it took a number of years to reach inscription in 1998. Um, the, another point that, that Stephanie Price makes is the World Heritage Convention requires state parties to implement legal measures, uh, of course, to protect those, those sites, but in practice this, this has been quite challenging. So for Renal, or East Renal, so I'll talk about in, in, a, in a minute, uh, ultimately, that site is um, is self-managed by customary landowners. That 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 there is no legislation in, in place to protect that site. Um, Anita Smith, who's out of Australia, has, uh, who's written a bit, uh, a bit about world heritage issues in the, in the Pacific, also makes the point that, that it's just a very lengthy process in the Pacific, particularly when the negotiations with customary landowners are required. It's also worth making the point here, I think, that um, many Pacific um, countries are relatively um, new uh, signatories to the World Heritage Convention. So perhaps some of these Pacific countries have only been thinking about the uh, UNESCO World Heritage Sites or potential UNESCO World Heritage Sites within their borders for um, a relatively short period of time. So when it comes to East Renal, yeah, it's a really interesting place and actually, and Renal itself is quite a, a, I found it quite a depressing place to be honest. Um, it was listed in 1998. Um, at the time that was a real land, landmark because it was the first site globally to be inscribed based on, on the natural criteria that was under customary uh, ownership and management. So that was really held up as something that was very significant uh, globally. But the site itself is, um, Look, it's just amazing. It's really stunning. Um, it's really it's dominated by Lake Tengano. Sorry, there's a typo there. There's no N, um, uh, um, which is the largest lake in the island Pacific. It's it's massive. Um, it's a truly unique environment, uh, surrounded by by virgin um, forest, and teeming with wildlife, much of which is an endemic. I'll show you some photos too, and soon. Um, and at the time, there was thought to be considerable to, uh, tourism potential for East Renal, um, but that just hasn't um, eventuated. And in terms of protection, ultimately, as I said before, it's self-managed by customary landowners. Here's some photos that I took when I was there in late 2015. Um, it's a pretty stunning place. There's um, uh, a U.S. flying boat squadron was based there in, in the Second World War, and they scuttled those those um, those planes or those boats at the end of the war. So they're in the lake as a potential diving attraction too. Um, there are some some pretty basic ecotourism ventures around the lake. That was the one that I stayed at, for example, um, who are, who are, are receiving just a trickle of, of tourists per year. As to why UNESCO's now on, uh, as to why East Renal, sorry, is, is now on UNESCO's list of World Heritage Sites in danger, well, the official citation um, notes threats from logging and, and mining that's currently happening in the in the western side of the island. Um, logging's been happening in West Renal for probably the last 10 to 15 years, but in the last two to three years, um, um, bauxite extraction has started, which has proved to be extremely divisive. Um, um, and creating all sorts of all sorts of tensions. Um, UNESCO also cite um, additional threats from increased lake salinity and um, the common ship shipwreck has also been relatively recently in, uh, introduced to Rena, which has created all sorts of problems for people who are who are typically reliant on on home gardens. Um, but that one of the main things is the economic benefit that was kind of promised to the people of, of East Renal and, and their social contract, if you like, when they offered their 
unique environment to the world, that, that economic benefit just, just never came. Um, a few reasons for that. Um, East Rennell is really on the periphery. Um, it's, it is off the beaten track. It's incredibly expensive to, to be there. Just to give you one example there, um, my overland travel from the provincial capital um, in the western side of the island to the lake was was cost more than my flight from Honiara to to the provincial capital. I spent thousands of dollars of, of New Zealand <laughs> taxpayer funds getting there for a few days. Um, and of course, the tensions um, uh, uh, happened in the Solomon Islands the ethnic tension period, which 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 stymied tourism sector growth. Um, so what you hear when you're in East Renal is is well, is this common refrain: World Heritage for what? What's what's the point of this? Um, and, and that's a that's a real issue for, for East Rennell. The New Zealand Aid Program and, and other aid development partners um, after inscription sort of started off a few uh, some some small support to, to ecotourism, for example, some livelihoods projects. None of those have been successes. Um, and just in recent times, which is a good, uh, uh, which is incredibly unfortunate, but one of the landowning groups from from East, East Rennell has has written to um, UNESCO saying that they want to, they want out of this. It's just, um, they haven't cited any reasons for that, um, but, but you can sort of postulate as to, as to why. Um, I'm just down to my, my, my last two slides here. Um, so when it comes to opportunities, um, uh, the, the World Heritage um, action plan does have a long list of proposed regional and national actions. Probably some prioritisation is useful there. Um, they have proposed a study um, on the economic benefits of inscription um, that hasn't received funding yet. That could well be could be could well be useful, particularly if it brings a, a Pacific lens. Um, in many many parts of the other parts of the world, inscription has brought economic benefit from increased tourism in particular. But it's actually been a bit of a double-edged sword in some cases, and, and some UNESCO World Heritage sites have actually been overwhelmed with tourists to the point where they it's it's a it's a major problem. And people have actually coined an expression um, UNESCO aside to um, to to. Um, uh, to, if you like to find that, 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 that condition, I don't know if that would happen in the Pacific, but it, but it, it does it does present um, the case that it, it is worth having to think about some of these issues. USP um, have proposed the professional certificate in heritage management uh, that was meant to be kicking off this year uh, or later this year. I'm not sure if that's still the case. I need to find out a little bit more. Whatever the case, um, probably further support is needed. So just to conclude, heritage and its protection matters. Um, I think whatever way you look at it, the Pacific is heavily underrepresented when it comes to UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And this bloke here, Claire, makes the argument that addressing a lack of balance, while it, can, it will never be um, uh, equally balanced, if you like, um, it is essential for future credibility of the World Heritage Convention. And so renewed attention to increasing Pacific representation is, is, is important there. But again, more support would be needed. Thank you. That's all I wanted to say. Thanks, oh, Rick. I'll just there's a few references there if anyone's particularly interested in in, in, in some more information on on this stuff. Excellent. Um, thanks very much, Luke. That was um, that was fascinating. I mean, for me, you're right. The heritage. Um, and its protection 
does matter. Um, but there is that fine line which I think you brought up around um, the link between environmental protection and economic development and the benefits that come from that. And as someone who lived in um, the Solomons for a couple of years, um, it's just it was really difficult to get to rental. So mm -hmm. I can I can understand that, that some of those issues. Um, but thank you very much for for, for that uh, presentation. Um, I would now like to invite um, Sanjesh Naidu, economist with UNSCAP, um, to present on the subject of implementing the system of environmental economic accounting for sustainable resource use and development in the Pacific. Thank you, Ray. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, realize I'm probably the last speaker here today for the, the conference, so try very hard to keep it uh, lively as possible. <laughs> not, not feeling great myself, but I'll, I'll make it, surely make an effort. Um, just want a quick, uh, quick, quick feel for anybody in the room who knows a little bit about this SIA, this um, System of Economic Environment Accounting. Yeah, anybody? I know Professor Vijayan um, <coughs> Roop. Um, they, they, they know a little bit about this. I mean, Professor actually <coughs> did a review for um, our, did an evaluation of our project that actually led to some of the, the results we've got here. So, <coughs> but very quickly, I mean, now um, knowing that background, I'll try, try to spend a little bit of time to explain some basics and then take it from there. Mm -hmm. So, a quick outline of what CA is, a um, bit of an overview of what what's happened, some policy applications, and perhaps giving a sense of what else needs to happen if we are to use this quite seriously in, in, in policy. <clears throat> the SEER, as you know, um, the term SEER is, is referring to economic and environment accounting. So very quickly give you a sense of what environment statistics are about. They're quite complex, as you'd imagine, uh, interdisciplinary to start with, interinstitutional. There's a lot on there. There's a lot that is actually we need to measure or think about when we're trying to measure the environment. We're looking at the state of the environment, we're looking at our dependence on it, we're looking at our impact on it and its impact on us, uh, but also how we protect it. I mean, we just had a look here, talk a bit about that, conservation and how do we manage so I think there's a big, big, uh, big scope of of, um, of thinking when we start looking at environment states. Sometimes quite daunting because in the Pacific, generally, environment states hasn't been prioritised as much by the National Statistics Office offices. It's usually the economic and social statistics which which have been actually given a lot more resources and <clears throat> support over the years. So uh, in fact, some of the findings that are come to later. So probably the first time some statistics office in the region have actually released something on environmental statistics using SEER. So again, what is SEER? Very quickly, it's an international statistical standard. It's been approved by the United Nations Statistics Commission. So it's a bit like your system of national accounts, for example, which measures GDP, if you're familiar with it. So this is also an international statistical standard. It's been approved. It's been it's gone through a process, and uh, it's recognised as a as a standard. It provides a methodology for um, compiling <coughs> statistics for a range of resources, and the statistics mainly on physical as well as monetary accounts, 
It could cover a number of things, and we'll come to it later. Resources like land, water, energy, ocean, waste, solid waste. Um, some of the residual things like waste and sort of timber, other things. It also has a very interesting element to it, which we haven't really got to in the Pacific. It actually can measure and describe and account for ecosystem services, the assets and services, both in monetary and physical terms. So it's actually quite important. For example, think about tourism, <coughs> what the reef systems there offer to the tourism product that you've got. This, this, this method, this approach can actually put a value to it and, and, and connect it back to, to your <coughs> sorry, GDP type of measures. I'll come to it a bit later. See your features very quickly. The, that, that's a book on the side there. It's called Central Framework. That that pretty much covers um, you know the basics of what this is. It is a it is a, is a system of measurement. It's linked to a system of national accounts. And as I said earlier, system of national accounts is the GDP measure, which many of you I'm sure are familiar with. So that's a really interesting point in itself because you can align some of these concepts, the classifications and the methods, to how we measure our economy. So again, because it is linked to the system of national accounts, it is actually based on accounting principles and um, it uses stock flow, asset supply use issues, it has consistent units to measure and value, valuation rules, but it's also flexible and I like to make this point. It's Quite flexible you can select and adapt components you can pilot a few things in smaller countries like in the Pacific and then try a few things um, for example if you were to measure um, energy resources you could start with just electricity generation and because you get that data from utility companies so you can take pieces of it you don't have to worry about biofuel you don't have to worry about measuring renewable energy if you don't really have that data you can start somewhere and then work work your way through so um <clears throat> so just going back to the point i started with you've got environment states and then we know about economic states so sna there on the screen is about economic states what measures and how do we measure gdp so when you put it together as I said, environment state is quite complex. Yeah, GDP, we know what, what that is. We basically, in measure in monetary terms, transactions between economic units. But the system of economic and environment accounting actually measures the environment and economy link and in many ways. I think the most important way, uh, if you ask me, it records the physical quantities or inputs to the economy. So you're trying to measure how much resources you need to use to contribute to the economy in, in creating that much output for the economy. So you're trying to, but it also measures residuals, what's called residuals in bold there. It's, it's basically what, what, is, um, what is something that comes out of it that you don't really want. You know, for example, solid waste from production of things or or uh, CO2 emissions from the production of energy, fossil fuel, lead energy, etc. And so that's, and, and it also has an important point there, the first one, it expands your asset boundary to include natural assets, which GDP doesn't do. <clears throat> this is the whole point. I mean, just if you looked at it for a minute, this is what SNA does. You're basically covering off the, 
transactions, but if you take the CAV of the world, you're broadening that out to include natural resources. You're trying to even look at where private and public sort of assets lie. You're looking at the, the, the flows, which, which, are, which you can measure both monetary and physical terms. And so it's quite a broader concept, and that's the point of this slide. Okay, going back to the SEER then. In terms of assets, as we said, you can measure assets. Assets here, you can look at any assets, yeah? mineral, energy resources, land, timber, um, water resources, other biological resources, ecosystem services. I mean, well, it's not really that, but the ecosystem itself. And then oceans. I mean, this is something we've just started working on within ESCAP and within the broader statistical community because of uh, interest to measure SDG 14. As you know, very little data and uh, capacity at the moment to track how we're going with SDG 14. This may provide some answers. <coughs> the, the, sorry, the assets, the accounts also has physical flow uh, component. So you're really looking at basically one thing from this slide, you're really looking at supply and use of materials. So you extract and then you consume. And there's, you know, a flow. You know, some you supply, you use. Basically, that's the whole idea. And you have residuals, as I said earlier, your air emissions, water emissions, and solid waste produced. So this measures flow. First we measure asset up here, and you've got a flow component as well to it. And of course you've got a monetary flow. Just like in GDP, you can measure things in monetary terms, same here. You, you can measure protection services, you can measure the environmental goods and services to each sector, the supply side of it. You can look at um, what Luke was talking about earlier, you know, how do we protect um, our resources, expenditures for conservation, conservation uh, protecting heritage sites, etc. And then, of course, what sort of, what sort of, um, you know, government um, uh, flows can you generate from it as well, in terms of fines, fees. So very quickly, let me let me get to uh, where we are with um, this SIA implementation in this region. You know, as I said earlier, I mean, uh, um, most countries listed there: Fiji, Micronesia, Palau, Samoa, and Vanuatu. They never had uh, opportunity to release any statistics, official statistics on environment. And this was kind of a first opportunity for them using the SEER. So Fiji issued or released uh, the using SEER, uh, energy, water and solid waste accounts. They're working on a land account that's forthcoming. And they're looking very interestingly at how to measure sustainable tourism using these things. So energy, water, uh, very important inputs into the tourism sector. And then, you know, um, solid waste is a, is a, is a residual that, that generally comes from tourism activity. So putting those, two, those three things together and perhaps thinking a little bit about ecosystem services, what they offer to tourism, you'll be able to pull together uh, a fairly interesting sustainable a measure for sustainable tourism. In fact, globally, um, the, the Statistics Commission um, will meet in March to endorse a global framework for measuring sustainable tourism using SEER. So it will be very interesting to apply to the Pacific given tourism as a, being a very important uh, um, activity, economic uh, value. 
Palau, uh, energy and water. It was really important to Palau because tourism is a big part of the Palauan economy. In fact, they had massive spells of drought there. And so they had to close down a lot of the attractions like the famous Jellyfish Lake, many other places like that. So very keen again to think hard about how they use their water resources and what they have and how that contributes to the economy and perhaps how to cap some of the tourist numbers using that. Samoa looked at water accounts and they're working on an energy account at the moment. Interestingly, Vanuatu plans to pilot an oceans account, really, to measure SDG 14, a lot of that. It's a lot of work. It's a, a three to five year project that we've kind of started to work on. Um, there's a lot of information needed on the oceans work and I won't get into that right now. But I think just to just to suggest that this has the capacity to actually extend or apply into things like the ocean's resources as well. So the last point there, there's assessments being done for each of these countries, just to understand what their priorities are, what capacity and data sort of issues they have, whether they're able to sustain some of this, and then develop practical kind of processes or plans to implement this. Um, oh, this is a very poor slide, I'm sorry for this. I mean, it doesn't look come out very nicely, but I must say we've got a real glossy publication here which has, has um, you know, a copy of that and, I, and we can talk about it later if, you, if you're interested. But this is Micronesia's energy accounts and this is what the results of uh, applying the SEER tool in Micronesia to energy looked like. You know, you can sort of start looking at how much um, you know, uh, the, the use is, uh, what sort of supply do they have, what sort of sources for supply of energy use, who uses it in the three states in Micronesia, in Pompeii, Kosrai, Chuk, and Yap. There was a, you can see a breakdown on where, where the demand is higher, where, where is the generation of electricity the highest. You can also start thinking about losses in distribution as well as generation of electricity, given the um, you know, the state of the, the generators that are used for producing these things. And, and, and also, I think we also started looking at the, the monetary <coughs> values of fossil fuels that are used in Micronesia to generate that much electricity. Came up with indicators, um, sorry, to quickly look at the efficiency in use of, um, you know, um, energy against uh, GDP activity. So... But just to give a sense, I apologize again for the state of that uh, slide. Let me move on. Um, some applications of SEER. It's uh, coming towards the end of my bit. Um, essentially, from our perspective, there's two important uh, applications. First, as you know and, and imagine, we, we could use this for policy, for planning. Um, you know, as long as we we... Um, get a, a, a critical mess of understanding amongst policymakers on the value of this as well as you know trying to get um, um, more capacity built in the use of this I think um, the whole reason for the pilot and, uh, and the work that's been done in this region so far was to create some or demonstrate some value and what these accounts could look like and what and how potentially they could be used. So in the countries I mentioned, 
I think it was um, a good opportunity for stakeholders to, to, to see for themselves that these things, first of all, can be produced in small jurisdictions, um, in small statistics offices. It's not very difficult to do, um, but I think it's, it's trying to take that step further to connect to policy. And so some policy applications here, they can be used, like budgeting, you can use for fiscal policy, things like taxation, creating incentives to use less energy, fossil fuel energy, for example, or more, you know, um, um, you know incentives to, to reduce residuals, for example, solid waste, plastic bags, you know, taxing these things, putting fees on it, on the use of plastic bags, for example. You can, you can come through a number of things you can think about. I'm sure as well. The other is trying to apply to a specific sector for resource planning. Uh, as I said earlier, measuring sustainable tourism appears to be an interesting one and Fiji started some work on it. Oceans management can be also an important one. It's a big resource from, for people and uh, Pacific peoples. Um, infrastructure investment and maintenance planning, you can apply this, for example, if you take water accounts, you can understand that how much you use and, and how much supply you've got for water. And, you know, it's obviously a lot of gaps there. There's also a lot of losses in distribution of water. And this allows you to capture that. And a lot of the losses in distribution is because your infrastructure is really not capable of actually being that efficient as it should be to minimize these losses. So you can think harder about infrastructure investment, maintenance planning even, that's an application. And lastly, regulatory measures <clears throat> that determine production and use um, of natural resources. I mean, these things could be uh, anything, for example, um, you know, how do we, how do we, um, sorry, I, how am I doing for time? Yeah, okay. So, <clears throat> so I think it's, things you know to regulate better use and better production of our resources you can think of many examples here um, even for example you know putting levies on the environment on environment use and other things but also trying to create good incentives for better or more responsible use of environments um, so litter uh, decrease etc for example if you're working on a solid waste account and you see it's becoming a bigger problem than it is um, you know, or you know, recycling as a measure and things like this. The other application, as I said, there are two major applications. The other one is actually trying to measure SDGs or your national development plan priorities. Most national plans have a monitoring and evaluation framework attached to it. The sustainable development goals um, have an indicator framework as well. And a lot of these indicators need to be actually measured if they are prioritized by countries themselves, if, they, if they're important to the countries. And it's a way of tracking how you are you doing with um, your development priorities or implementing them at least. So the CA connections to SDG, there's some explicit statements in the Sustainable Development Goal Indicator Framework. So target 15.9, for example, talks about integration of ecosystem and biodiversity values in national planning and local planning and development processes. Also, you know, and that's something that remains an elusive target, I think, for many of the countries in the region and will remain for a while because of, for good reasons. I mean, I think taking small steps 
before moving into ecosystem services can help here and we've started to take small steps with the things that are easier to do like water and energy and then moving into bigger things just to give you an example of how you can apply um, <clears throat> the use of SEA and the findings of SEA to measure um, goal 7 of SDG on energy four of the six SDG indicators can be directly or partially measured using SEA energy accounts also provides a measure for CO2 emissions and 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 then you can also think harder once you've done that analysis you can also think harder about how efficient your resource uses so fossil fuel or you can think about intensity of use of energy vis-a-vis one 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 percent output of GDP for example and you can start thinking about how what sort of capacities you need or infrastructure you need to improve that um, so I think it's my second last slide, uh, Chair, so you allow me to wrap up. Uh, I think there's a bit of work in progress. Uh, by no means this is, um, this is um, you know, we're not close to, um, you know, um, um, you know, a perfect um, sort of SEA uh, um, capacity or SEA uh, sustainability situation here in the Pacific, still early days. Um, as I say, some countries have made good progress. They've released official statistics and environment. It's a good start. There's obviously a lot more to be done. And I think what we want to do is improve the quality of existing accounts. At the same time, try to see if we can apply it to things that are important to the Pacific, like the oceans. And there's a big project that's starting off. In fact, next month we've We've invited the USP um, academics also to join us for that in Bangkok, try and uh, think through some of the technical aspects of, of creating an oceans uh, account, but also <coughs> measuring of sustainable tourism, as I, as, I, as I talked about earlier, it's an interesting application. And the last bit there is essentially trying to see if other countries would be interested in doing something like this and trying to see if they could be, um, you know, making use of it not all countries in the pacific will value this but uh, we need to look at it case by case or country by country uh, as a reference document as i said we we did a bit of a knowledge product um, just to put out there what what we're doing here amongst the development partner community um, in fact uh, very few have worked in this space in the region we've tried to partner as much as possible with a number of stakeholders uh, a few stakeholders that are there but we've tried to create this knowledge product, so it signposts, you know, future work as well as some lessons. And, and I've got some copies here in case anybody's interested. Vinaka, uh, thank you very much yeah, for your time. Thanks very much um, for that really interesting uh, presentation. I mean, it makes, it makes sense to me that um, countries and communities are able to um, better account for um, how their ecosystems, uh, both from an asset and a, um, and a usage uh, point of view, because I mean, even I think when I was thinking about when Luke's presentation um, about uh, Rennell and the uh, and World Heritage Sites, I mean, one of the things that it would be worth knowing for the communities and for the governments is, well, what's the what's the, the assets, what's it worth, what are the costs? Um, uh, does it make sense um, to, uh, you know, 
to apply for this sort of heritage listing. So I think um, having the uh, the data make makes sense for me, and hopefully it'll it'll keep going ahead. Um, in terms of our third speaker, can I just double check that Paula is not here? Okay, so look, unfortunately, um, our uh, third speaker, Paula um, Range. Rangekwai is it here? Um, so that actually means that we will have uh, one more time for um, for questions, and two, there'll be a little bit of time, hopefully, for you to stretch your legs um, before we have the uh, the vote of thanks, which will be in the main. Uh, so yeah, the vote of thanks and the close, which will be in the main theatre. Um, so let me open it up um, to questions. Um, hopefully there's there's enough time for, for everyone's question. Um, you can either um, attribute your question to a particular speaker or if you want both to um, to answer, then please let us know. So questions. Oh, please. Uh, one question for each of you, Sanji. When you look at these things, the problem with environmental accounting is how do you account for things that aren't easily valued? And you have mostly expenditure, but that may have been just a product of your slides. But you're going to have ecosystem services that there is no market for. That's very well known in economics. So what are you doing with that is what I want to know. There's contingent valuation, all sorts of problems with that, willingness to pay, all sorts of ways to create markets. And yet if you don't capture that with oceans, you get bad policy, so I'm interested to know how you're dealing with that aspect of it. And look, having worked on one of those heritage things that, in PNG that took over two years to get, it's an enormous amount of work with a lot of people working on it. And although the Pacific is underrepresented, uh, and it would be great to have them more represented, the issue is if there's no trust fund, if there is nothing to support once the thing's in place, then the system's broken, really. It doesn't work for its purpose. And so I was wondering what your thinking was on the structure of the system as it sits and how it has to evolve to make it attractive and to protect the places. And otherwise, I can't, I can't see how the system works in a developing country context. So I was interested in your thoughts on that front. Who would like to go first? Thanks for that question. I think um, start with, I should have said, the ecosystem services account in, in CIA is experimental at mm -hmm. this stage. So the global community hasn't quite, you know, got it head around, you know, the methodology and, and things. There are a number of techniques that are identified, you know, market values or looking at some sort of estimation mm. that best is experimental at this stage. I think countries have used it, for example, Australia, uh, mm. the Great Barrier Reef, for example. I mean, you know, it's anyone's guess what you're really, um, what you're really looking at. Once you start looking at the services or how you sort of define the importance of various services of Barrier Reef, provides and there are techniques within that to say okay maybe a few things are more important um, highly scientific but um, if you looked at two estimations that are out there the same same ecosystem service you there's a lot of room there to say well it's first of all they they're quite different 
Secondly, people see things quite differently in mm. terms of what's more value in that ecosystem service than other things. So long and short of it, um, it's an experimental an account of a, on an experimental basis at the moment. They have asked for you know, that modular, the flexible approach to, to start looking at what may, may make, may mean more, you know, for a certain context. But um, it remains a uh, work in progress, yeah? I mean, for example, as you said, there's a, I don't know whether you're familiar with T, which mm -hmm. is an, an economic uh, environment accounting um, technique that some people have used here to measure ocean resources in Fiji, IUCN and GIZ. I mean, it's very different in the approach they've taken on CM. So again, you know, uh, <laughs> It's very complex, and I don't think there's one right answer to it. The international community still is grappling with what may work, what may not work. But if you look up the uh, ecosystem services manuals, they'll offer a number of options, and you then apply to the country. But it matters which option you, yeah. you choose. Yeah, it does. Mm. Yeah, as long as I guess you can justify some of these in terms of uh, why you've kind of picked some of these things. In other areas of the accounts, there's a fixed methodology, mm -hmm. so that doesn't change. It's okay. comparable. So if we did a CIA energy account for Fiji and Australia has done the one, sorry, um, you can compare. You can actually say, like, like GDP, you can say why Australia is probably more energy efficient or less energy efficient than Fiji, because the basis remains the same, the units used remain the same, the classifications remain the same. That's not the case in ecosystem services. Mm -hmm. For now. Or I can discuss it more. Yeah, yeah. yeah, thanks for your question, Meg. I'll try and respond, uh, respond to that as best I can. Um, yeah, getting the structures in place so uh, so things work. It is, it is challenging in the Pacific. Um, obviously, in other parts of the world, the, the structures are, are in place um, to... Um, to ensure that the the requirements of the of this of the state party party are met, um, I mean, I think the answer is a can in, in the Pacific. Um, look, I'm not I'm not going to pretend to be an, ex an expert on heritage sites in the Pacific, right? But my understanding of the um, the site in, in Vanuatu, Chief Roy Mata's um, domain, which is in the north of Afate in Vanuatu, the structures are, are in place and it's kind of working. And the people are people are benefiting. They've they've been um, managing some 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 small scale tourism activities, for example. Um, that that mean that that, that that the people living in that area are, are benefiting. And local custom is 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 at the point where. Um, um, Nothing's changing. You know that those those sites are those sites are protected uh, and, and and things are working. But in the Solomons, it's clearly clearly not working. Um, no one's benefiting from the from from the inscription. Um, there is no uh, legislative framework in place to to legally protect protect that area. So it's relying on on that area to be um, effectively self managed, um, and that's kind of worked to date. Um, but there's clearly some. Clearly, some threats to that. I suppose it's a matter of how serious um, Pacific governments are about about world heritage sites, um, how that kind of fits into to their grand aspirations uh, in, in other areas. Um, I mean, Solomon Islands is very serious about tourism as a, as a as a as a, a sector growth opportunity, uh, and that kind of makes sense. I mean, the New Zealand government 
um, sort of picked up on that when I was there and agreed to um, to make tourism uh, 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 a focus, uh, a sectoral focus of engagement there. Um, I think that kind of made sense. Um, but of course, it wouldn't be a good look um, for the Solomon Islands if everything goes really badly in East in East Grenoble, um when when they have these grand aspirations for the tourism sector. So, I think it, I think if 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 if, if Pacific Island countries um, are serious about it, they they can. Um, I, um, but but it's but it's certainly certainly not easy. And um, yeah, look, it does take uh, years and years uh, and piles and piles of paperwork to to reach inscription. Um, and and, and uh, but that but that's but that's not it, is it? Yeah, I think that's your point, yeah. point, Meg. It's yeah. far more than that. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Thank you. Um, are there any? Please. Oh, was that? Um, for Sanjesh, um, are there um, are there plans or processes in place for subnational reporting of of the um. I forget the uh, getting old. It's, I've just lost the acronym. But um, see ya. Um, and uh, how? When are they going to be released? And how do they work? Okay. Please. Okay. Yep. Yeah, no. Thanks. I mean, the only subnational or um, level uh, work we've done was in Micronesia, as you know, the four states in Micronesia. So we've tried to do a account energy account for the federal level, the Pompeii, I mean the whole of Micronesia, which is run, you know, centrally out of Pompeii, and then you've got all the, the four states as well. So we've done accounts for the four states, what they use, what, what's, what's applied there, um, and, uh, and looking at, you know, the comparing the states was an interesting exercise because... Uh, you know, not not the same energy efficiency in terms of generation. The generators are very different in these um, states, for example. So you get more efficient uh, generation or inefficient generation uh, comparisons. Also, the use, the demand and use is very different. Some of these islands are very big. Some of these states have big tourism uh, sector demand, so they big uses of energy. So it's quite different. So the household <coughs> sector may 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 use less and uh, commercial purposes are more. So FSM was the only one uh, where we've actually got some, somewhere to, you know, some way to kind of look at uh, some national uh, uh, you know, application of SEER. In fact, the only one. But uh, the tool really allows you, there's enough flexibility to apply it in a smaller spatial uh, area. So it's you can start even with a city, for example, if you wanted to. There's no, no limitation there. So, yeah. So that's the only time we've kind of done a national as well as the, the state level in Micronesia. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, I have a question for Lou. Once these um, sites around the world are accepted onto this heritage listing, are they giving any support from the United Nations or the international community in any shape or form, financially or <laughs> legally, or do you know? Yep. Um, my understanding is um, for UNESCO, in some cases, can have uh, funding available, uh, and that's been, uh, for example, in East Renal, that's been uh, utilised for 
um, uh, studies, I, I, I think, um, technical assistance, training, um, sort of workshop facilitation, that sort of stuff. So there is, there is, there is funding available from, from UNESCO funds, which probably come from a variety of sources, I suppose. Um, and potentially, um, uh, there's support available from other development partners too. Um, I know in the case of East Renal, um, UNESCO tried to sort of broker a, a, a a big round table and to galvanise a lot of attention for, for East Renal. Um, they want, they've want they been encouraging the Solomon Islands to approach development partners for, for assistance. Uh, I mean, what uh, UNESCO naturally want to see is um, for uh, East Renal to come off that, that list of, of World Heritage Sites in Danger. That seems to be their main, main focus. And they've been encouraging the, the Solomon Islands as a state party to, to seek that assistance in, in order to do so. Um, but I think in, in, East, in Solomon's case, or East Reynolds' case, um, the government's just not doing that. Uh, and, and I guess you need to ask the question, is why, why is it the case? Maybe, maybe they've just got greater priorities at the moment, um, and, and that may just be it. I, I tried to make the, the, the point. Um, I resigned from New Zealand MFAT um, just quickly after visiting Reynolds, but before I did, um, I put some stuff into the system saying that like, I think New Zealand has a stake here, and I still think that's the case, um, because New Zealand did a lot of the work um, prior to inscription, and New Zealand, as I was saying before, had made the decision to support tourism sector growth, uh, as a, sorry, the tourism sector as a, as a um, particular sector of engagement. Um, that hasn't happened to date. Uh, New Zealand's focus is elsewhere in, in, in Solomon's when it comes to its aid engagement. Um, but, uh, but ultimately it's down to the, to the state party, I suppose. Uh, uh, when it comes to Solomon Islands and East Renal, they um, haven't been able to provide to UNESCO the sort of information that they wanted. The, the, the report, for example, to inform the, the recent meeting in Bahrain, um, Solomon Islands hasn't provided that, which, is in a, which is sort of suggests that, that at the moment it's not a, it's, uh, it's not a focus for, for, for the Solomon Islands government. There's clearly competing priorities. Uh, my question is to you. I mean, given that we've been talking today, uh, we talk about sustainable tourism all the time, and here we we talk about in terms of looking at uh, Solomon Islands with a logging sector, which is huge. It's a big proportion to GDP. But why are we not talking about sustainable logging in that particular case, given that New Zealand has a big aspect of sustainable logging our timber, I mean pine and all of that sort of thing. So looking at even what uh, Sanjay uh, presented and linking that to yours, I think that th those are some of the things that can be linked to in such a way that maybe UNESCO can provide that uh, funding linking to the earlier question of sustainable logging and even particularly if it's a world heritage, <coughs> then could we not just say the pride of the Pacific and here's the funding for the logging that, I mean, the logging that you'd have lost in terms of that. So I think, what what are your views on that? I mean, these are not something that has not been done. Um, so there's a few parts of that question, I think. There is some sustainable um, forestry in the Solomons. Uh, no, um, no development partners are engaged in that. Um, there is currently no logging in the, in the World Heritage Site. Uh, I suppose you could potentially consider some very small-scale logging. Um, there have been proposals put to the Solomon's government and development partners around, um, now I'm not an expert here, but um, 
is it REDD plus, is, is it carbon credits, essentially uh, uh, paying people not to cut down their trees? That's been uh, proposed um, as, a, as an option for East Reynolds. And probably, um, given that everything else has failed before, um, it's probably worth, worth giving a shot. Um, I know uh, Live and Learn, um, in partnership with a small outfit in New Zealand, is doing similar stuff in, in, um, in Fiji and Vanuatu and, Choi, and in Choisul and Solomons. Um, um, and they are, um, and, and the choice, and the, uh, the the Choiceal um, um, project in the Solomons is a, is a bit of a pilot. So, yeah, that is an option um, and perhaps the best one, I think. Thank you. Sorry, just before the, the question, if, if you don't mind, I'm just going to, to take advantage of my, of my chairmanship here because I think that is a really interesting question about how do you, um, how do you add some economic... Um, uh, benefits to to conservation and I think Luke Ray's Red Plus, I'm actually going to call on someone I haven't let him know but he's just about worked it out, um, Josefa Lala Balavu over there um, who now works with me um, actually worked on uh, with Live and Learn on a Red Project here about um, uh, working with the communities on um, uh, Forestry. So I'm, I'm going to let you explain because I think it's useful just to really quickly explain what are the options around carbon off, off uh, credits and, and how that's gone because I think that'll be of interest to people here. Is that all? Did you continue? No, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you, Rick. Um, in a nutshell, uh, red plastics is quite a, um, um, it's a new form of development um, to ensure that trees remain standing while uh, the local communities benefit from the income that they would have received from logging. So in other words, that they would have received the opportunity for us to log in that sense. Um, our, our colleagues in um, the NRDF, so to speak, if Luke is quite familiar with that, uh, the Natural Resource Development Foundation, uh, working in Sasaboy and Chuezel. Uh They have been uh, um, one of the key actors working with Live and Learn to that regard. Um, you can actually derive good lessons learned from that particular project and implement it in, in the said location. But we must also ensure that we adhere to the respective checklist requirements that the uh, carbon trading standards require. Uh, these are international standards that we must achieve. And uh, I'll, I'll just leave that that point for now. Those are some of the key components that I'd like to Thank you. Thank you, Chair. I think that's an excellent uh, option to follow in terms of uh, conserving some of these resources. But my question sort of linked. It has to do the business of advocacy around uh, in SIA, but uh, especially with respect to World Heritage Site. And advocacy also is linked to ownership. So if you look at uh, Labuka, uh, in a historical cultural site, there was a whole lot of work done by the local communities and the town council. And there were a few champions at that time 
who push for these. And of course, one assumption was, you know, that uh, apart from conserving, you know, those buildings, etc., this was an important tourism source of tourism income. And so, in the case of Lubuka, I think it has worked, perhaps not as brilliantly as they wanted, but that advocacy has meant that the government as a state party acted on that, and uh, that there is actually local ownership. Now, from what Luke was saying with, res you know, with respect to East Renal, it seems that you know, any local interest seem to be dissipating because they don't seem to have any economic benefit. So red plus is a way to go, perhaps. But, you know, with respect to transportation, both the chair and you have said it's very remote. But I remember from my undergraduate days at USP, Reynolds had a bauxite mine. Mm. So how is it that, you know, these bauxite miners are getting in and out of Reynolds, you know? So there would be some form of transportation. But, you know, it's a remote site. It's a problem. And with respect to SIA, again, you know, this is at the moment at a technical level, experimental level. Uh, and uh, the issues around what you do with the data that is generated. Uh, so you have been very busy building capacity in the region with National Statistical Office. But ultimately, the idea is that the Ministry of Finance and uh, the National Pending Officers take this data up as evidence for integrating into the National Pending. So, Sanjay, can you tell us if there is any uptake by National Pending Office and Finance? Thank you, Chair. Thank you, uh, Professor. That's, uh, that's uh, um, a good pick-up from uh, some of the messages in the presentation where we um, tried to highlight that you know, there is need to create a critical mass of policy demand or demand by policymakers to use some of this. Um, it's never going to be easy, particularly when you've got um, limited capacities and people with very different um, philosophies and development uh, philosophies and uh, priorities. You know, um, often we we've not really looked hard at environment in our consideration of budgets or plans. The sustainability of our assets, our resources, hasn't been a, a naturally a big consideration. Even in countries that have done this for about 30, 35 years, for example, uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics have been, has been producing see, accounts for Australia for that long. They'll still struggle to tell you how uh, <coughs> Treasury takes some of this up because, you know, there's, uh, there's quite a bit that happens in the political and the policy-making processes. It's not quite straightforward. But the point and the question you asked is valid, certainly a concern of ours, to try and <coughs> sensitize a lot more of the, the policy makers on what we've been able to collect so far or produce so far. And while doing it, we've also tried very hard to reach out to some of the policy makers while in country or otherwise. In fact, um, Roop, uh, will join us for a capacity building regional training session in the next month or so 
Um, and, and again, we're trying to bring in the planners, the finance people, as well as the statistical people together to think harder about some of these questions and apply it in country-specific cases. So work in pro process, <laughs> progress, you know, um, it's going to take a while. There's a bit of traction in a couple of countries. Um, <clears throat> I can't say um, so much um, in the South, but certainly in Palau, they've taken the, the findings very seriously and naturally very strong on conservation of assets and tourism uh, being a very important sector for them. They're very worried about how water or limited fresh water resources have been, had been used for, for supplying the tourism sector. So, um, for example, they put in some regulation capping the number of visitors arriving into Palau. I mean, this gives them a sense of where the infrastructure, for example, is at the moment, what they need to do more to upgrade some of the, the distribution, water distribution infrastructure. I think that's the closest I could come to think about where and how they've actually used it. Um, in Fiji's case, while well, we've done a number of, <coughs> while well, Fiji has Bureau of Statistics in Fiji has released a number of these accounts officially. Um, <clears throat> there's an ongoing discussion between planning and finance and, and, and stakeholders. Uh, we try to, um, you know, as much possible facilitate some of that. But I think uh, early days, as I, as I say, but it's certainly a, a, a need to, 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 to pick up the demand and use of some of these things. Um, Thank you. Uh, yeah, just briefly in response, VJ. I mean, I, I agree with what you, what you said about um, really local communities and local champions and being needing to, to, to drive a process to, to reach inscription. Um, and secondly, when it comes when it comes to Renal um, or East Renal, yeah, I mean, it is it is remote, but it, it is connected. <laughs> Only just, you might argue. Um, I mean travel outside of the principal road network in Solomon Islands is exceedingly expensive. It's, it's really staggering. Um, um, and you talk to the people in East Renal, and what they want is some benefit. They want telecommunications, which they don't have, or as of late 2015, they don't have. So they're not, they're just not connected. There is a road, um, but, but travel on that road is ex exceedingly expensive, and so they want a they want a better road. I suppose there's some potential disadvantages with a better better road, though. Um, um, and that would make uh, would 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 it would enable easier access from from logging companies. Um, so potentially a double edged sword that one too. Yeah, maybe maybe you can enlighten on this one. Uh, picking on what Bijay said. Sorry, I missed you earlier part of the presentation. Levuka is was uh, is a heritage site. So um, I did some work for the Fiji government cost-benefit analysis for four bridges that they're building now, which are over 100 years old. One of those was built in 1890, the one for those who are familiar with Levuka, right in front of Levuka village. And uh, once everything was done, they realized that they have to build it in the same way the, the current design. So it has come with a really costly change of plan. Mm. And I had a chat with a lot of families and households there. <coughs> And after the cyclone, they have to build their houses back in the same style as it was. So they actually, you know, got trapped into this, this heritage thing. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know, just a comment and maybe you can, uh, you can, and they're really worried about this. And then the other bridges that they have to build, 
they have to build it in the same fashion. But the, the modern engineers are saying, no, you can't go back to those designs because, you know, the new climate change. Mm. So, you know, I don't know what's happening. You know, it's been a few years since I did the cost benefit analysis and nothing has happened. So I guess they're trapped in that, you know, the, so. Yeah, I think it's just a good example of, yeah. of, of, of you know, that this stuff has these kind of both sides to it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, I'll uh, quest one opportunity, last opportunity for questions because we've we've hit our time, which is fantastic. <laughs> All right then. Um, so it uh, it falls to me then to um, to firstly uh, thank our presenters. Um, Luke, so just thank you very much. Um, to all the assistants, thank you uh, very much, and for USP for, for hosting this year's specific update. So thank you very much, and I'll ask for a round of applause. Um, and then finally, and uh, most importantly, I'd like to thank everyone in this room and um, everyone who's watching online for, for taking part. Um, uh, for actively participating, I mean, I think these I think these panels always work best when there is good um, participation from the from the crowd. So, so thank you very much. Um, and I have been asked to just uh, remind everyone that uh, there'll be an official closing in the main theatre at quarter past five. So you've got about uh, 15, 20 minutes to. Um, to stretch your legs and to and to catch up and ask any uh, questions that you'd like of the of the speakers. So uh, again, thanks very much. Thanks for for holding on for the for the last session, um, and um, I wish you a, a lovely evening and a good weekend. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.